Welcome back to The Deeper Cut, a podcast ministry of Mercy Hill Presbyterian Church. It is great to be with you again this week. My name is Tim Pasek. I'm one of the ruling elders at Mercy Hill, and I'm joined by our pastor and my fellow elder, Phil Henry. Phil, how are you doing today? Doing great, Tim. Good to see you. Good to see you too. It's a great way to start a week, getting together with you and um, having a cup of coffee and spending some time talking about the sermon and, and thinking thinking more deeply about it. And man, we have a doozy on our hands today, Phil. Yeah, I agree. It's a great way to spend the week, but we've got our work cut out for us this morning. <laughs> well, if we just said one thing that was helpful and then, you know, closed up shop, then we would have served our purpose. So there you go. Let's just strive for one thing. One, one helpful thing. <laughs> Um, it might maybe, take us an hour to get to that helpful thing. Yes, yeah, uh, or longer. But um, no, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, we often don't know what shape that conversation is going to take before we hit the record button, and I, der- I definitely feel that way this morning because um, there's just so there's so much that could be discussed uh, for those who have not had an opportunity to listen to Phil's sermon from Sunday the 12th of November uh, on Jacob's Blessing. I would, I would recommend that you go and hit the pause button now and go listen to that. It's on our other podcast channel, our, our, sermon, our sermon recordings. Um, your text was a little bit in Genesis 25 and a little bit in Genesis 27 because you were trying to capture the, kind of the whole story of Jacob's blessing. Mm -hmm. And maybe we can actually start there because it was your first point. Um, and I, and you spent a a significant amount of time on, I thought it was extremely helpful because if, if you just went by the editorial headings in your Bible, you would think that Jacob's blessing was squarely in Genesis 27. In fact, Genesis 27 in the ESV, the, the, uh, ESV, uh, not authors, but the editors. The editors sure. put in Jacob blesses or Israel, uh, Isaac blesses Jacob. That's the heading there. Mm-hmm. And we might neglect to remember that Jacob is blessed even before he enters the world. Um, back in in Genesis twenty five, and that's where you picked up the source. I think you used the words. Um, uh, what was it? The the waters, the head, the headwaters of Jacob's blessing, back mm-hmm. when he and his brother Esau were still in Rebekah's um, womb. So, or perhaps I should have said uterine waters. <laughs> Might have been a little too graphic for maybe, the pulpit. Maybe. <laughs> maybe it was just, you know, maybe maybe it was just, you know, acid indigestion or something. Okay. Heart heartburn okay. going on. And and not the the two brothers fighting within her room. Although I think we're probably better off trusting God's infallible word <laughs> with uh, with what actually was going on there. But I, th- I think it was an important, uh, a super helpful and important point to focus on that Jacob's blessing that he receives, uh, although. As we find out in the story, Jacob being the the scheming, conniving kind of guy that he was in his earlier years, um, 
was not of his own doing. It wasn't like he he figured out a way to get a blessing that that wasn't coming to him. Basically, it was God had chosen to bless him um, from the very beginning before Jacob even had an opportunity to do anything about it. That's right. Um, knowing where to start in uh, a story like this, it, it felt a little bit like in, in, um, in a cartoon like Peanuts where you see this dust cloud spinning around and it's Snoopy fighting with somebody, you know, or, 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 or Linus fighting with Charlie Brown or something. And you don't know what's going on in the dust cloud, but you need to jump in and grab a hold of something. Mm. <clears throat> and the complexity, the seeming contradictions in this story, uh, I find it confusing. Um, having read the Bible through many, many times over the years, this has always been uh, a section, it's, it's certainly vivid, there's lots mm. of interesting features here, but mm -hmm. how to put them all together is not easy. And, um, you know, uh, to, to use another illustration, if, if one of our military personnel are taken hostage, they, they know what to recite. You know, this is my name, my rank, um, to keep them focused on who they are and, you know, where they're at and what they're supposed to do. Starting with Genesis 25 and the scene in Rebecca's womb is a little bit like that. No matter what happens in the ensuing conflict and as the dust cloud forms and all the features of the landscape disappear into a fog, and we're wondering where we're at in our journey, we can't forget mm. that God, from the beginning, chose Jacob, loved Jacob, and reprobated Esau, hated Esau, to paraphrase Romans 9. And that must be our controlling thought when, when, a, when a golfer approaches the ball on, on, on the tee, you can't be thinking about all the mechanics of the swing. You just need one simple thought. Mm -hmm. And so by starting there, I wanted our swing thought through the whole sermon to be God's electing, sovereign electing uh, power and grace is the foundation of Jacob's blessing. Mm -hmm. I was encouraged in this in my reading of Voss on uh, biblical theology where he makes the point that the, the keynote in the story of Jacob Israel is God's election. And so that, that also, not only my own Bible reading practice has been, okay, remind me where we are in Jacob's life and what's going on. Oh yeah, he was chosen by God. And I probably heard a sermon like this too, probably over 20 years ago, where the pastor pointed out the very thing that I did, and I remember thinking, oh, mm. that explains a lot. So um, just as a, as a shout out to being good listeners, God uses, you know, I am now in that position. I was in seminary at the time. 
I'm now in a position of preaching this text. Um, I think I've probably avoided trying to trying to avoid preaching this text for a long time because it's so complex and challenging. But now that I'm here, that faithful pastor uh, many, many years ago, I think it was an evening service at an OPC church somewhere in the Chicago area. Weird how I have this mm. detail in my mind. But um, so... So that pastor, my own Bible reading, and then Voss in my um, in my preparations this last week were extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. One um, one thing that we we didn't get into yesterday, but is an interesting wrinkle that I forgot about, is that Rebecca was barren. Yes, and all all three. Uh, patriarchal wives are barren at, at points. Right. I think, like it, it, it deserved. It does deserve, and it, and it did deserve yesterday more time than I gave it. But in all three cases, we have a, we have a story in which the the older is serving the younger, who comes to existence in a barren womb. Mm-hmm. Um, as if to say the concerns of the father are not as expected and the expectations of the mother are not as expected. So we truly have a, a fully representative patriarchal, matriarchal subversion. So when we talk about patriarchy today, as I, as I concluded the sermon about with some applications to Christian families, <clears throat> I'm I'm repeatedly drawn to this to the phrase redeemed patriarchy. I don't know if I'm sure other people have used it, but we need a, a heavenly minded patriarchy whatever if there's any place for father rule in the church, in the home and in society today. It has to be based upon principles that differ from the world. Um from what we would maybe be naturally drawn to. Of course, that's a complicated equation, but I, I definitely think it's worth mm. emphasizing. Um, Rebecca's natural maternal instincts are absolutely thwarted here, even though in the end she's rewarded, but she doesn't come out looking good in all of her scheming. Um, and isn't it interesting how... The father and the son, Isaac and Esau, resemble one another in their sins. Yeah. And then the mother and her son, Rebecca and Jacob, re- resemble, and each happen to be the favorite of the other. Yeah. So each son learned, you might even say, learned their, their sin pattern from their parents. And that was part of, that was kind of in the background in my closing application as well. Hmm. I got. Uh, I, I wanted to read this quote from Voss. Um, my wife appreciated this in the sermon as well. I used the the hundred units of grace, yeah, or a hundred units of merit or works, and even if one unit of, of work there, then then grace is diminished by by that degree. I got that I, idea. I've probably heard that from a lecture that Sproul gave years ago and 
um, uh, it's um, Jack Miller has his saying, "Cheer up, church. You're worse off than you think, but you're blessed far than far more than you can imagine." Which is just kind of a, a kind of maybe a hip '70s '80s way of, of putting the same thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, Voss's phrase is to affirm to however small a degree that the individual man is the decisive factor, that our works, in other words, are the decisive factor, to affirm this to however small a degree effectively detracts in the same proportion from the monergism of the divine grace and um, detracts from the glory of God. You're familiar with monergism, Tim. Talk about why that's important here. Um, Trying to think of it within the context of of what you just read. Um, I would say that... So so my, my monergism, I'm referring to the sovereign component of sovereign election. Right. <clears throat> yeah. So it's um <clears throat> it's it I I don't mean pure in the sense that we normally mean it, but in that it's uh, uh untainted or or whole without any type of other thing getting in, involved. It it's if anything else other than God's sovereign perfect choice in and of himself was involved in the situation, then it's n- no longer this pure pearl or diamond or, mm-hmm. or it, it loses its value because mm-hmm. the thing of most value is God in his glory. And so therefore literally anything else that could be involved, whether that's human merit or any other thing or virtue. Yeah. Um, is going to, um, add impurity to use my analogy, into that. So, um, what we need most is the divine life. We need the life of God as God's creatures made in his image. That's what we've lost. In the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. Mm -hmm. You will die physically, and part of your soul will die. And we haven't completely lost the image, but the life of God has departed from us. And that is to say, the friendship and communion with God has been uh, severed. Hence, our first parents were put out of the garden. And what we absolutely need the most is to be restored to the life of God. And so, by emphasizing, as I think the text does, the monergistic, that means only one person is working, and that's the being of God. The, the, The work, the singular work of God in choosing Jacob, by emphasizing that, what the text does is it says, the thing that the world needs the most is the life of God. That's what we've lost, and this story is about regaining that life.
uh, our catechism, question 19, what is the misery of that estate wherein man fell? All mankind by their fall lost communion with God, mm-hmm. are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. But that first part, lost communion with God, mm. is what we're That's strong. referring to. It here. is. Uh, koinonia, the shared life, the common life that we enjoyed, creaturely life that we enjoyed with God, was forfeited uh, along with uh, enduring physical life. We were subjected to the ravages of a dying world Mm -hmm. and the ravages of alienation with God. So we come to the gospel and we have our perfect Jacob, no longer a scoundrel, but the true Israel, is the one who has brought us near Ephesians 2. We were far off, uh, alienated from God, and but in Christ we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. By grace you have been saved. Mm. So he, he has to uh, choose us. Uh, the bridge gets built all the way across the canyon in the person of Christ. And in electing Jacob, God, and we're going to see this in subsequent weeks, Tim, God also furnishes uh, Jacob with the capacity to discover the life of God by faith, which Jacob will. I don't think we see him doing that in our story. Mm. He lays hold of the birthright, which is, I, I said that was the title, of the blessing. Um, He then gets the blessing and then immediately he has to leave the scene, which we couldn't really talk about, but Esau finds out. He wails and weeps and moans and groans and uh, the only blessing that's left for Esau, which is ironic, is essentially, um, I think about this, the only blessing that's left for Esau is the blessing, quote-unquote, of diminishing Jacob's blessing <laughs> or complicating it, frustrating it. Yeah. So in this regard, the only blessing that Esau has is that he gets to play the foil, to the spoiler, to Jacob's comprehensively gracious blessing. Mm. So, um, (laughs) nothing's left for me. Mm. Nothing's left for me. Uh, So, but, uh, so, so he plots to murder his brother. Um, We've seen murderous brothers in the story before in Genesis. And Esau, uh, or rather Jacob, flees for his life. And I think you begin to see Isaac coming to his senses in Genesis 28. In, uh, read Genesis 28, 3 and 4. This is where uh, Rebekah tells Jacob he needs to get out of Dodge quick. And on his way out, Isaac blesses him again. But this time it's unequivocally the blessing of Abraham, whereas with this, with the... Uh, with the hairy, the hairy goat episode, uh, 
it, it was a blessing, but not exactly the blessing. Right. So I'll start in one, uh, 28, one, then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your, of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. Mm. Yeah. So Isaac here, I'm saying, has come to his senses. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's quite a difference. The tone, um, e even from twenty-seven to twenty-eight, I think we see a, a, an evolution or a clarification. Because in twenty-seven, it's the smell of the stew and of the coat that evokes the field in Isaac's mind, and then he gives, "May you have the fat of the land and the dew of the heaven," and 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 so forth, as he puts it. But it's the it's the sensate experience of Isaac's nose that brings forth the words from Isaac's mouth. But in twenty eight, it's just it's faith. Mm. It's pure, uh, faithful recollection of what his father had had been promised, and uh, you, you see Isaac kind of rising to his stature as a patriarch here. It's also interesting that the occasion that, that, that prompted the blessing that Jacob stole in 27 was Isaac's fear of his impending death. Yeah. Well, Isaac's going to go on to live for another 40 years. <laughs> now he's blind and perhaps a little muddle-headed, but I think there was a, an opportunity Isaac had to look death in the face and say, I don't need to worry about transmitting this blessing until God's time. God's not going to let me depart from the planet until the blessing is given to the right son at the right time in the right way. Mm -hmm. um, that's some speculation, but I think it's a good, it's a good inference based on uh, the way that the story unfolds. And a, a warning to Christian parents, you know, God, uh, God wants us to not worry about death, but to trust him that he's going to see to the transmission of the blessing mm -hmm. in his time and in his way, and we don't need to help him out. Yeah, we don't need to take matters into our own hands. Mm -hmm. There is still, e even, and that's wholly true, but we see here, just like we saw with Abraham, there's still this, um, I don't want to say common sense approach, but Isaac comes, almost comes to his senses there in 28. And, and he goes, cause he still, he, he, he gives, he does bless Jacob mm -hmm. and he blesses him with the blessing of the Lord. Um, so it's not like, the blessing in 27 was the, the end of the story 
and Isaac just fades into the background until mm-hmm. he dies, and we find out that Isaac dies. You know, he, he says, do not take a Canaanite woman mm-hmm. as your wife. Go do this, you mm-hmm. know. And it's almost like, <clears throat> you know, something, you know, the Lord, like, you know, woke up, shook him and woke him up and said, what, what, are you do, what are you doing, dude? You know, don't you remember? I think so. I think, I think fathers do get tired of telling their sons uh, the will of the Lord because the sons don't listen, and clearly Esau didn't listen. Mm-hmm. You, you have to assume that Rebecca and Isaac, at the beginning of their parenting journey, communicated the importance of avoiding Canaanite girls. <laughs> Esau being an, an animal, uh, a sexually immoral animal, just didn't listen to his parents. Yeah. And... Um, um, at the end of 27, there's this really poignant phrase where Rebecca's like, I've, I've had enough of these Hittite women. Yeah. She says, I loathe my life because of the Hittite yeah. Uh, women. Yeah. So, <laughs> so moms and dads' marriages break down in part over division that results from the sins of their kids. Hmm. The sins of the kids emerge out of division that exists between moms and dads. And it's this very, this is just a truism. It's just a a self-affirming cycle. And uh, we need our children to pursue godliness when as parents we are not. And we need as parents to pursue godliness when our children are not. And ideally, we're both, you know, both groups of people are doing it at the same time. Hmm. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a, a stress here in the text on good decision-making, I think. Not that that's the be-all, end-all, because we see God very clearly his blessing and his promises go forth regardless, not even regardless, in spite of the manipulation and the sin Mm -hmm. that is running rampant in the story. But it's almost like time and time again, we see these people whom God has chosen through his sovereign election to be blessed, continue to, to, to kind of botch it. Um, and yet God provides grace and we see growth. I think of, you know, Rebecca, um, she's, she's listening outside the tent, kind of like her mother-in-law was listening I think inside so. the tent. I think so. And Sarah didn't believe what God had promised. She laughs, right? And right. gets called out for it. Right. And here, Rebecca, I'm like, I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. Jacob, get over here. You right. Know, we're going to. We're going to make sure that your father doesn't screw this up. Um, and there's, there's so little trust in the, in the Lord um, in these circumstances, even though he's been pretty clear uh, in his promises. Hmm. So it is the deeper cut. Maybe we should wade a little bit into the topic of predestination. We're talking about election. 
the sovereignty of God, reprobation. What do you think, Tim? <laughs> I'll put my waders on and okay. let's see how far we can go. Okay. Let's make sure that we don't get hit by the, the, the tidal wave or the tsunami. Okay. At us, but yeah. All right. I mean, if, if ever an appropriate time to, to get into that, now would be... Now would be it, unless we're, whenever you start preaching Romans, you know. Then I, have, I don't know when that's on the preaching yeah, agenda. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not mature enough yet to tackle <laughs> Romans. But uh, why don't you read Romans 9.11? Sure. Um... I'll start in 10 since 11 is the middle of the sentence. So, and not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and, and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of his works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So, Paul, in the sermon, I pointed out that the New Testament helps us to interpret the Old Testament. So, Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is providing us divinely given interpretation of the episode in Rebecca's womb. God chose Jacob before he had done anything good or bad. God hated, the text said, or we might say reprobated, mm -hmm. Esau before he had done anything good or bad. Now, by doing good and bad, let's, let's just sort of walk through this. Paul is not saying that they were neutral or blank slates or a white canvas. Paul's not denying original sin, right? He's simply speaking mm -hmm. as to their conduct in this mortal life. So there's a, a necessary inference that we make when, when Paul says before they had done good or bad, Paul is assuming that they both are sinful from the time that their mother, Rebecca, had conceived them. And therefore, they are under God's wrath and curse because they are the offspring of not just Isaac, but the offspring of Adam. Right. So, the reprobation or the hating of Esau it may be, and I think must be understood, as God simply treating Esau as he deserves, which is to condemn him, justly to condemn him to the destiny which he deserves in his natural lineage descending from Adam. And in blessing Jacob, we, we must understand that blessing as God graciously without any desert on Jacob's part, 
because Jacob also deserves the exact same thing his brother deserves. Right. Graciously choosing to give Jacob something which he does not deserve. He's earned the opposite, but God in his mercy, uh, gratuitously, Mm -hmm. freely, without any basis in the man, gives him something out of his own free, sovereign uh, love and mercy. And so he elevates Jacob into a society that he doesn't belong and gives him a, a right that he doesn't deserve. So thoughts about that first set of uh, truths, I guess. Does that sound right? Like I'm. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think the Voss quote they used, it was the gratuitousness of grace that election, yes. that election highlights. In a way, I'm paraphrasing here. Yeah, it, election brings out the gratuitous character of grace. Yeah. Right. Um, yes, I mean, I think that's what the this text preaches. I think that's what the Bible shows from the beginning, um, even back in the beginning of Genesis. So for whatever reason, and the reason is we're... we're fallen and sinful, but our minds throw up roadblocks all the time to try to make us weasel our way out of mm-hmm. that being being true. But that's true. It's, that's what the Bible teaches us. So objections here are, that's not fair. Mm-hmm. I wasn't there in the garden. I would have done differently. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's a pretty common objection. Uh, why doesn't Esau get a chance himself? And I think Paul's answer is in Romans 9, somewhere around verse 20 or 21, he, I think he says, why are you, the pot, arguing with the potter? You're the work of art. You get to display the mind and the genius of the artist. You don't get... You don't get a vote in this matter. You don't get a say in <clears throat> the arrangement. The structural arrangement of the world is federal. It's corporate. Mm. God has chosen to operate the world along the lines of corporate representation where one man, Adam, represents the whole group. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is that on the on the side of the solution, one man... Christ, the new Adam, also represents the whole group. Mm-hmm. And so while it does seem unfair in one sense, it's only unfair because things turned out so badly. So you have an opportunity, um, complaining sinner, this is me kind of debating, and I wouldn't ever call someone a complaining sinner, but you know, this is the hypothetical. <laughs> Paul has this hypothetical uh, argument, argumentative uh conversation with a hypothetical objector so that Mm -hmm. you know so you you wouldn't complain oh objector so much if things had turned out well the only reason you're squeaking is because the outcome was quite negative yes but that's again i think um that's also our sinful nature I mean, we're, we're, I know for me, um, that's always true. 
you know, I'm very quick to complain, even at the smallest grievance, which usually isn't even legitimate. It's just, I think I can make up an excuse to complain. Yeah, I, I do a lot of squeaking myself too. So, <laughs> um, our, our, our confession says that we we fell in Adam's original sin, but then our sin, our actual sin comes forth from that as well. So we're, we're condemned also by our actual sins, which are inevitable based on our, orig our original sin. Okay, so here's another objection, Tim. You use the word inevitable. Are we subject like robots to something like... Uh, um, fate. Uh, are, are, are we, you know, was Esau condemned to a fate that he could not control? How do we understand the reprobation of Esau in light of, say, free will or human responsibility? Or even, uh, is God just a tyrant? I mean, if he has the ability to save any, why doesn't he save all? So what do we say to that sort of objection? The, 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 um, so I have a couple of thoughts and I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hit home run here. I don't think, but the, the classic response, which I think is a, a legitimate and good one is why does he save any? So that, that would, that's kind of my first Okay, elaborate on that because that's that's important. I think so. Um, you know, if the if the question is posed, why doesn't he save all? <clears throat> we've already we've already stated that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore all deserve um, the penalties thereof of death and destruction and hell. So why does God see fit to save any? In his, why does God show grace to any? Um, would be just a, just as legitimate and frankly, and even um, in some ways better question in my mind. Um, I think one other thing I'd like to bring up here, and I don't mean to go off on a tangent. It's so, okay. Um, we're definitely in deep waters, so currents come. I and think it's also important flow. to to remember that God works through covenants hmm. with His people. So Adam, as our covenantal head, in his sinning, therefore passed on that transgression to all who come from Adam descend from Adam in that regard. That's why there's a second Adam, mm -hmm. Jesus. So um, I guess the, if someone were to try to make the argument, well, what if practically speaking, you'd never sinned? Your, your, for lack of a better way, I'm sure there's a, a more clear and concise way to say this, but in my mind, your judicial standing before a holy God is that you are guilty. Mm -hmm. mm. So that's not even getting into the, the practical, like, well, what if you, what if you could conceivably not sin? Mm -hmm. um, your... The covenantal arrangement 
such as it is, I think what you're saying is that that arrangement um, has resulted in a guilty verdict. Right. So, And we might not like the fact that the world and the universe and humanity is has been ordered covenantally, but we're not the creator, we're the creature. Right, that's right. I'm looking for the passage. So, Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Um, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And then he goes on to say, mm-hmm. Jesus brought life to all. Right. So that, that's where I'm getting that covenantal... Yeah, no, that's quite important. Nature. That's quite so, important. In the Institutes, Calvin answers this objection in this way. Um, he says... If predestination is nothing but the meeting out of divine justice, secret indeed, but blameless, because it is certain that they were not unworthy to be predestined to this condition, it is equally certain that the destruction they undergo by predestination is also most just. Besides, their perdition depends upon the predestination of God in such a way that the cause and occasion of it are found in themselves. For the first man, Adam, fell because the Lord has judged it to be expedient. Why he so judged is hidden from us. So why God allowed the fall in the first place is a secret. And so we're, we're wise to not delve into that. This is the other part of the answer is that, we, that people hate so much, that the objector hates so much, is we want free reign to ask all of our questions. Come, you doubters. Come, you skeptics. And, and even that's, that's an emphasis in our church, Tim. We encourage the questions mm-hmm. to a point. Because some, uh, I heard a, a fellow pastor of mine once say there's a difference between cynicism and skepticism. A cynic is not interested in the conversation. He's just interested in playing the spoiler. Mm-hmm. So... Part of the objection needs to be answered, don't you think, with the pastoral shush? That's not a question we're permitted to answer. Um, so that's that's hard for some people. Uh, if if I don't get the answer I'm looking for, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would just say in that circumstance that that person hypothetical as they may be is never good gonna get the answer that they're looking for no matter where they they go and look for it mm-hmm. so um the, the great apologetic uh sequence faith seeking understanding fides quire intellectum not the other way around we don't we don't begin with wisdom or intelligence or understanding human notions and then add to that faith it's the opposite we begin with faith and then slowly 
like the rising sun, sheds ever an increasing amount of light on the landscape. Proverbs 4 shines brighter and brighter to the perfect day. We see this in Jacob too. He, you see the dawning clarity as the story unfolds. Uh, he, he sees the ladder coming down from heaven. Um, he wrestles with the angel and uh, calls it Bethel, the house of God. Um, he's amazed that he saw God and survived. So, and then in the end, he, he blesses his sons. So the sanctification of Jacob is going to be, uh, going to take us on some, some pretty remarkable, mm-hmm. uh, pathways. But at, at this point, I think the most important note, and this is where we started, is the election is by God's sovereign decree. Calvin's, this is uh, Institutes, Book 3, Chapter 23, Section 8. And uh, he ends that section that I just quoted from. He says... um, We should contemplate the evident cause of condemnation in the corrupt nature of humanity, which is closer to us, rather than seek a hidden and utterly incomprehensible cause in God's predestination. And let us not be ashamed to submit our understanding to God's boundless wisdom, so far as to yield before its many secrets. For of those things which it is neither given nor lawful to know, ignorance is learned, the craving to know a kind of madness. Hmm. So there's a time and a place for what Calvin's calling a learned ignorance. Yeah, well, you already said this, but we are creatures. We are not the creator. Mm-hmm. So we are limited by our very nature in what we can know and can understand um, and there are things that we are not, not only not permitted, but not able, even if we were permitted, to, to understand. Um, so not only can we not understand <coughs> why a creator would show grace, but we also, more, um, maybe more practically speaking, we don't know whom he has shown his grace to definitively. Um, which also plays into how we operate in the world because we don't get a list of names, you know, of, of who, who is predestinated um, for heaven and who is predestinated for hell or any of these things. And so what are we to do with that, Phil? I mean, we have to basically walking by faith um, living lives that are to the glory of God and trying to encourage others to do the same because we have we have no knowledge right nor, nor should we but because we don't we treat everyone the same we, we have we have no logical choice other than to do that um it's true yeah that's very true 
so it is so interesting that in spite of the sinful way, uh, I, I actually called it wicked, the wicked way that Jacob sought the blessing, that he was in the end seeking the blessing. Hmm. God does not, so my question is, um, since Jacob is promised the blessing by God's sovereign election, does that justify any means to get it? No, I mean, Paul would say, should we keep on sinning so grace may abound? By no, by no means, you know, like, uh, that's not to say that God doesn't show grace upon grace to us, but that does not mean that we should just go do whatever the heck we please because we have no control of the circumstances, and, and therefore, that that's like saying, oh, I'll worry about getting saved later because, you know. Right. There's always tomorrow. Right. You know, I'll just wait till my deathbed. Um, lest that person forget that you don't choose when your day when your days come to an end. So, so as we're going to see in the subsequent life of Jacob, he paid dearly for those sins. Mm-hmm. The scheming and grasping and the lying and the duplicity, the pretending, um, the fighting. He was he was under the threat of his brother for you know for decades after that he feared for his life uh, the scriptural account once he runs away from Esau in Genesis chapter 28 he we have no record of him ever seeing his mother again so that means she never got to meet if that's true she never got to meet his his wives his children the the favored son and so rebecca also paid dearly for mm. she had to send her son away mm-hmm. and never got to speak to him again um it is interesting later on in the story esau does wind up serving jacob mm. so there's a, a bit of a lightening of the gloom around esau towards the end of the story i don't think I would say that Esau uh, gets saved, but uh, it's certainly a, a fun thought exercise to think, did, it, did Esau's recognition in the end of his life of Jacob's supremacy and his rightful place, and did because Esau eventually relents on uh, something like forgiveness, uh, could that at least hint at a, uh, at least a covenantal awareness that the covenant is going through his 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 younger brother. Um, well, certainly that's what we're called to do. Mm-hmm. We're we're called to abandon our claims to supremacy and yield to Christ. And um, I think Esau even. I mean, the text tells us that. Repentance was denied him, though he sought for it with tears. That's Hebrews 12. As a warning to all of us who would dally with sin, thinking that we could, like you said, that we could repent tomorrow. Um, so, but that freezes in, in time one event in Esau's life. Hebrews doesn't go on to say, now Esau did 
appear to forgive his brother later on and there's hope for all of you Esau's out there. Mm. But I think that's I think that's kind of the implication of the story. Mm. Even for Esau, so called so called reprobate Esau, we don't know. Ultimately we don't know. I mean there's two persons in scripture we know their eternal destiny. Satan and Judas. Beyond that, we don't know. Yeah. And even with Judas, there's, there's movements of repentance toward the end of his life. Uh, it's just that we're told by in, inerrant and authoritative scripture that Judas was destined and, and went to the place where he was destined. But, so all, uh, if I can put it this way, Tim, despite the principle, the, the crucial prin- biblical principle of God's sovereign election, until you breathe your last, this is to your point again, you don't know mm-hmm. that God has rejected you and you have an opportunity to repent because those, those parts of God's counsel are ultimately secret to human minds. Hmm. And in application of this, at, at the end of the sermon, I pointed out Parents, don't stop praying for your children. Wives who are married to unbelieving husbands, husbands who are married to unbelieving wives, don't give up, don't lose hope. Keep trusting. I think we need to give up on how God's going to answer our prayers or that he would answer them in our lifetime sometimes. We need Mm -hmm. to release the outcome. Yeah, one of the... um points you made or something you said in your sermon that I wrote down was um, God's election guarantees the, f- the furthering of his glory. Mm. Often at, I don't want to say at the expense, but basically at the expense or in contradiction to man's glory. And man's election. Mm-hmm. And when I say election, I mean choices. Mm-hmm. So they're often opposed. <laughs> We're often setting ourselves up to oppose God in our decision making. But God's decisions always guarantee mm-hmm. his glory, mm-hmm. where ours often do not go towards God's glory. They go to our own glory. And so that doesn't mean stop making decisions and and just kind of try to be like a potato mm-hmm. and not do anything. But it does mean that we should be trying to make decisions for God's glory and not our own, not be in opposition to God. But often when we find ourselves in a opposition or surprised by something that God's doing, it shouldn't be all that surprising to us mm-hmm. because God is always going to do things for his glory and it's guaranteed in that in that way and that often is not the way we see things (laughs) um from our perspective so i have one more question for you as a father with young children none of your none of your children came out uh covered with red hair no but you have seen animal-like qualities in them even at this point i'm sure yeah (laughs) Um, can you see those traits in in seed form 
in your young children's lives that being, you know, a man of the world and a man of experience, you're like, hmm, this one is going to be hard for her or for him to shake. It's it's probably going to dog his heels, uh, chase him for the rest of his or her life. Mm-hmm. And that gives engine to your and your wife's prayers for these kids. How, how do you... How do you handle seeing things in their lives that appear to be <laughs> traits like yeah. the grasping nature of Jacob, for instance? Yeah. That are going to be hard for these kids. Yeah. Um, so a couple of thoughts there. First is is exactly what you said, prayer. It's praying. Right. Diligently praying. And this goes back to a point you made, I think it was last week's sermon, but not just praying gen- generically, mm-hmm. praying specifically mm-hmm. um, for my kids, for their current sin struggles that probably are just going to con- continue to grow and mature into more dis- deceitful skin, uh, sin struggles in the same, same vein. So prayer is th- the first and foremost thing. Beyond that... Um, not leaning into those things, meaning often the world um, tries to smooth those rough edges or, I don't know how to describe it, um, kind of make light of serious things, even sin. So I'll give it, I'll just give it a kind of a generic example. Eldest children tend to be, I'm, I'm an eldest child and an eldest son. So kind of very opinionated, strong-headed. Um, I'm going to do what I want. I know what I, you know, I'm going to make my own decisions. You can't tell me. Um, in fact, I'm going to tell everyone else what they should do. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up very much like that. I mean, that's been a struggle my entire <clears throat> life um, of showing humility, not just showing it, but actually being humble admitting when I'm wrong and actually admitting that I'm wrong, not just saying, oh, well, your idea was, mine was valid, but yours is maybe a little bit better, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, it's easy to make light of that trait and say, oh, well, you know, she's the eldest, you know, or you should, this is one I heard a lot, you should be a lawyer because mm. you have an argument for everything. Mm-hmm. You know, you should, that you're, you, God has made you to do that kind of a thing, you know, um, and kind of almost leaning in to those character traits that, mm. that I'm not saying are wholly wrong. I mean, God can use those things, but there's a lot, there's a lot of sin struggle there, a lot of pride and a lot of boastfulness and a lot of, um, lots of other things. So, uh, one of the things that I'm very, you know, uh, keen on or, or paying a lot of attention to, particularly with our eldest daughter, because she's exhibiting those first child traits. And I see that a lot of that in myself. I go, ooh, all right, I'm not going to be able to like train this out of her. She's always going to be the firstborn. She was the first grandchild on one side of the family. And she's the only granddaughter on the other side of the family. So she's really been set up yeah. to struggle in, in this way. Um, just being pampered and, you know, showered 
love and, and affection upon. Um, and it's one of those things where we try to, to, to do that, um, you know, obviously love her and, and show her how much we love her, but it's not like she can't ever do anything wrong. And when she starts wagging her finger at me or my wife, that's a big no-no. <laughs> Even at three, you do not do that. You don't talk back to dad and say, no, dad, I know better. Uh-huh. She's already doing that. <laughs> it's like, we're going to gracefully try to help you understand that you don't know everything and you are not the boss in our home. You don't make the decisions. And even if, um, even if you have seniority in a way over your younger brother, that doesn't mean that you get to choose what he does and does not do all Mm -hmm. the time. So I, I use her as an example, but to answer your question more broadly, um, when you see these things, don't just kind of cuddle up to them and go, mm-hmm. oh, that's really cute. Look at her. You know, she thinks she's the boss. N- no, like she needs to start learning even now um, by what we're training her, but then also seeing that in, in me. Like I don't want her to, to, to think that it's okay for her to act that way because she sees me acting that way with my wife, mm-hmm. right? So um, the best way to train her in repentance is to see her dad being repentant Mm -hmm. when he's sinning. So these are things I think a lot about. We struggle on a day-to-day basis. Don't get me wrong. Sure. Sure. But it's a great, that's some great texture and nuance to the question of where maybe we can end with this, this idea of redeemed patriarchy, Mm -hmm. uh, self-mastery through the scriptures, self-discipline being being controlled by the Holy Spirit. This is how God wants you to position yourself in the world. It also happens to be the best way for you to position your children mm-hmm. in the world so that they can see in you. And uh, we don't want you to uh, excite animal-like traits in your, in your children who are who might be men or women of the field, sensual men or women, men who are profane. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, your daughter has a tendency to be profane. She she's comfortable in this life, and she's hardwired in some ways because of her original sin nature to to not think about God. And so, part of your holy responsibility is to is to make it harder for her to be profane mm. and to stop being profane myself that's the first <laughs> task that's the first task and there's grace you know um, all along the way yeah all along the heaps way heaps and heaps of it that's that's an important thing to to remember because we don't do it perfectly um, either in the self-government or the government of your house Mm -hmm. and uh there's there's gobs and gobs and gobs of grace along the way so check back in with me in 10 years and ask me how i'm doing with that (laughs) will do will do we'll be at episode you know 1500 by then sure well um you do have 
you know, this pastor is committed to praying for your parenting and, and, you know, I'm speaking of 10 or 15 years, I'm 10 or 15 years ahead of you in, in the journey. And, uh, you have the benefit of hopefully learning from some of my mistakes, but I'm trying to exercise that self mastery by the, by the power of the Holy spirit, walking in the spirit, mm-hmm. uh, at the stage of the journey that I'm in. And, um, there are people in our fellowship who are 10 or 15 years ahead of me and are helping me in that way. So we'll continue to help each other and, Amen. and preach these hard truths, Tim. Yeah. And I think there, it, it was a challenging message, but hopefully also one that was practically useful for, for the flock and for our listeners. I thought it was excellent. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, pr- practical, like you just said. Um, but also, you know, I think uh, often we're tempted to think of election in this like negative way. And I look at it more like I'm kind of a glass half full kind of guy anyway, but it's just so filled with grace that God, you know, you look at Jacob and even... <laughs> Coming out of the womb, he was, you know, a rascal to use, um, to use who's a Dale Ralph Davis yeah. term, and yet, and thanks to Chris O'Brien for the book, <laughs> um, and yet you see God's grace to him, you know, and and you, I know we're gonna get there, but you look at you look at Jacob towards the end of his life. And he's a completely different guy. Um, and that wasn't his own doing. Mm-hmm. That was God. And I look at my life in that way. And I'd like to think and hope that other people would say I'm a completely different guy than I was mm-hmm. growing up. And that's because of because of Christ, because of God working in my in my life. So um election is it's a hard thing, you know. Mostly because we want to think that we could crack that nut, and and we can't, and we shouldn't. But um, even though it's hard, it doesn't make it any less good or beautiful or filled with with grace. So that's how I choose to look at it, at least. Amen. Hopefully our listeners feel the same way. Um, I really wish we would have had a couple... Uh, I could think of a couple people who are probably, if they're listening to this the whole time, are conversing with us through the airwaves because they have lots of thoughts. This is a conversation that I don't want to say comes up often, but it seems like one of those, you know, guys around a fire pit with a cigar kind of conversation. The the tough, deep theological things that um, that we like to talk about. But I'm glad that we had a chance to to do it. With would have been nice to have a cigar, but. You know, coffee and a microphone works works too. So it was a good one today. Lots more that could have been said as usual, but you know, we'll save some for for the upcoming weeks. Um, sneak preview: Who do we have? Uh, another Jacob. Uh, another another installment in the life of Jacob. Yeah. The the redemption is going to start to shine. I think we might be hitting Jacob's ladder, but. Um, if that's, if that's not this week, it's the following week. And 
what I love about that is, again, as with Romans 9 and Genesis 25, we have Jacob's ladder explicitly referred to in one of the most beautiful chapters of the New Testament. I mean, Romans 9 is definitely one of the most beautiful chapters as well, but John chapter 3, where Jesus himself refers to the ladder. So he he interprets for us what Jacob <laughs> experienced. In, that's, just, that's just cheating to preach on that then. I know. You know. I know. Well, Jesus said it. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's doubly hard because now you have two texts to, to kind of talk about. Right, so. right. Well, well, we look forward look forward to that. I'm really, really enjoying this this series, and I, I know a lot of people in our church have, have said the same to me. So thanks for your continued efforts there, and we'll be praying, and I'd encourage you... Um, you listeners from Mercy Hill will be praying for Pastor Phil this week as he prepares to preach this upcoming Sunday. And thanks again for tuning in with us uh, on The Deeper Cut. We look forward to talking to you next week.